Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I'm currently joined by Morris P. Fiorina. He is a professor of political science at Stanford University, and he's a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. I had the pleasure of meeting with Professor Fiorina when Sanity Media was just an idea, and he's the author of a book called Unstable Majorities that I turn to often. So Professor Fiorina, thank you so much for joining Sanity. I'm very happy to be here. To kick things off, there is a study that you cite in Unstable Majorities that has stuck with me. It was published in the Journal of Politics, was developed by some graduate students at Stanford, and it found that Democrats thought on average about 44% of Republicans make more than $250,000 a year. The actual percentage is 2%. Huge disconnect there. And it works both ways. Republicans thought 38% of Democrats were gay, lesbian, or bisexual. The actual share is six. You talk a lot about the electorate and disconnect in political parties and what the electorate really feels and thinks. But how do you grapple with just such startling data? Well, I think the thing is you have to keep in mind that as one of the comments I always make is that everybody you see on TV is abnormal. That all of the talking heads on the shows, all of the panelists on CNN, et cetera, are simply not representative of the American public. And uh, that the kind of people who go shopping at Walmart and the big box stores, and the kind of people who are dropping their kids off for school in the morning. And I just give you some facts and figures. About 1% of the eligible electorate subscribes to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. About 1% watches Rachel Maddow. Uh, about four-tenths of 1% watches Anderson Cooper on CNN. So very, very tiny portions of the American public are really tuned in to political news. They're the junkies out there. And unfortunately, they're the public face of politics. So ordinary people sort of who are not paying much attention, nevertheless, they'll walk by something, a TV in the airport and see CNN, or they'll just happen to sketch a few minutes of Fox News or something. And they get these very strange images of what American politics looks like based on, on these unrepresentative people they see on TV and read about in the various magazines. You are a giant in this field. You've studied these kinds of problems for the majority of your career. We're at a point right now that in my lifetime feels very different. And you sometimes say that this is an anomaly. What kind of thoughts or advice looking at history can you offer to remedy some of this disconnect? Not necessarily disconnect from the political parties, but from this kind of elite and everyday people. Well, unfortunately, most of us analysts are simply much better at analyzing what's wrong than we are at proposing any remedies for how to improve it. And the only thing I can say is that I try to, in all the talks I give and the things I write, to bring home this point that believe your own eyes, the people you interact with on a day-to-day basis, providing you're not living in Washington, D.C. or Manhattan or someplace like that. But look around you and do the people you talk to, do they resemble in any way the kinds of people you see blathering on TV? And the answer is no. I mean, 
answer is basically people are going about their daily lives, raising their kids, working, trying to find a little time for recreation. And politics is a very, what we used to call a remote interest for most people. And most people want the government to work well, provide obviously peace and security, economic prosperity, civil order, and all of the kinds of things that agitate people uh, in the political class that is so active are typically much lower down in the priority list of the, the broader public. Basically, all I can say is try to keep in mind that, as I say, everything you see on TV, read about in various specialized publications is written or spoken by abnormal people. They are not representative of normal Americans. When the abnormal people, I spent my career working on political campaigns and on the Hill, so I therefore spend time with with some of these abnormal people. But this is anecdotal, but I was at a fast casual restaurant not too long ago and struck up a conversation with a couple sitting at the table next to me. And the wife is a nurse and had been a social worker in the past. She started to tell me that co-workers of hers were having a discussion about the transgender bathroom bill in North Carolina. Her colleagues asked her thoughts, and she really didn't want to share her thoughts, but she ended up sharing her thoughts. They were different from her co-workers, and it had a very real lasting effect on her working relationship with people who were treating sick people. So that's frightening to me. Again, it's anecdotal, but in conversations I've had with other people that share similar concerns are seeing some of this trickle down from what the elites are writing about or thinking about. Are you aware of any data or any research that's looking at that part of this puzzle? I think people have gotten much more careful about what they say, just simply knowing, just sort of, even though many of these incidents you talk about are unrepresentative, just the notion that, well, I think there's just much... (laughs) Just the whole Trump thing, frankly. There's much more sensitivity about people that a lot of nerves were, I think, on edge. I'm not aware of anything terribly systematic. I mean, there is research showing that pretty conclusively that people's emotional reactions to political figures and parties are greater than the objective differences in policy issues and so forth would seem to justify. Just, just partially it's due, I think, to the stereotypes we just talked about a few moments ago that people think they're farther apart and more different. By the way, one of the interesting findings does come out of the literature is the least accurate people in terms of talking about the other side are the people who are most partisan and most ideological. That independents get it right. Independents can describe Democrats and Republicans pretty accurately. But the more you go out toward the partisan extremes, they're the people who really do think most Democrats are gay or most Republicans are rich. They're really, in a sense, the people who pay most attention to politics actually know the least about it in the sense of what's subjectively true and what's subjectively false. I think, yeah, we are in an era, but then I continually run into sort of, you might be involved in an ordinary conversation and somebody will say something that you think, boy, around Stanford, I never hear anybody sort of come right out and say that. But in the broader world, people are not nearly as sensitive to the, the norms, the political correctness ideas that are out there that I think, again, it may be percolating down somewhat or it just may be that the kind of circles we move in, we're more aware of it. I live in Boston, and there was a study recently that came out that put my zip code, my county, as the most politically... I saw that. Yes, yes. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little disturbing, and it basically the, the crux of the data is we do not want to have relationships with people with opposite or opposing political beliefs in terms of dating, in terms of sorting neighborhoods. You talk in your book about sorting versus polarization. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those two ideas? 
Yes, I talk a lot about this in, in everything I write, and it's because I think it really is key to the present dysfunction in our politics. To start at the beginning, if you take the American electorate as a whole and you don't slice and dice it by party or ideology or gender or anything else, it actually looks the same as it did in the Jimmy Carter Gerald Ford years, believe it or not. Nothing really has changed. What has changed is that lots of things underneath have aligned. That it used to be that there were liberals in the Republican Party, especially in the Northeast, the Wells, Salucci, et cetera, type people, Rockefeller in New York, Scranton in Pennsylvania. There were conservatives in the Democratic Party. Now, if you're a liberal, you're almost certainly a Democrat. If you're a conservative, you're almost certainly a Republican. Things like race have, uh, the African-Americans have always been Democratic since uh, roughly the New Deal and then later the Goldwater election. But it's really the case now that race whites are more aligned with the Republican Party than they used to be. We just don't have as many cross-cutting cleavages. I, I often talk about the marriage studies you're from, probably familiar with. The people now, Republicans say they'd be more unhappy if their child brought home a Democrat and vice versa than they were 30 years ago. And the answer is, well, in, back in 1960, if a, a Republican parent, their child comes home and says, I'm going to marry a Democrat, the reaction is, well, what kind of a Democrat? A union guy from the Detroit, a, an intellectual from New York or Chicago, a Southern conservative, one of these Westerners who wants to build dams. It didn't give you much information about what kind of person that was. Well, Republican uh, daughter comes home and Democrat daughter comes home and says, is going to marry a Republican. Well, again, a, a, a New England liberal Republican, a Midwestern sort of small business person, a Western conservative. Now, with all these stereotypes out there and the parties having sorted, your child's going to marry a Republican and you say, what, you're going to bring an evolution denying homophobe into the family? Or if your child's going to bring home a Democrat, you say, an America-hating atheist, you know, that, that there are these stereotypes reflecting the sorting of the parties. So as I say, the, the average Democrat and the average Republican are farther apart than they used to be, but not nearly as far apart as people often think they are. But people think they are, especially the more partisan you are. There, there's a very nice book by uh, Samara Carr and, and uh, Yana Krupnikov on how more and more people are rejecting partisanship altogether. That, for example, back in the Eisenhower era, three quarters of the population said, I'm either a Democrat or Republican. That's down to 60% now. The 40% won't even cop to being a member of a party. And these authors in, in their research show that uh, there's just a general reaction that I don't like partisans, that the whole notion of partisanship has become unattractive to a large swath of the public. There are a number of states that have more registered voters that are registered independents than Republicans or Democrats, Alaska, New Hampshire, Maine. I mean, it's an indicator that at least portions of the population would rather identify as independent than as Republican or Democrat. One thing that is often kind of said with the concept of independent is do independents really sort themselves into, you know, they typically vote Republican or they typically vote Democrat. And we do see with elections where there's a viable third party candidate that independents will often vote for that third party candidate. As we look to 2020, if we end up with extremely polarizing choices. I mean, the the majority voters picked the lesser of two evils when we were in 2016. If this happens again, at what point do we end up with a trend instead of an anomaly in terms of this? While the electorate may be more frustrated, we're not seeing a translation of elected officials that reflect that kind of independent viewpoint in Congress and in the executive branch. Well, that, that's certainly true. And largely it's because most of the people who are not turned on by either of the two parties simply don't participate in politics. The people who 
give money, who work, who vote are the ones who count. And those are the people who are our own representative of the larger population. And so right now we see, I see candidates taking positions that are clearly not optimal for the general election, I'm talking about mostly Democrats here, but they know they're facing these primaries, which are going to have very low turnout and caucuses, which have really, really low turnout. And so they have to appeal to this hard core. And then they got to figure out a way to come back and backtrack from some of these positions they've taken when it comes to moving back toward the center for the general election. And it gets harder and harder in today's world, unlike a generation ago, because everything you say is somewhere recorded. I, basically, you're going to see in the Democratic primaries a lot of the writing the Republican campaign ads for them, that the Republicans are really filming everything they said and just be working a whole lot of it into ads in the general election campaign. So it's one of the pathologies of, of our politics, I think. And it won't go on forever. I'm, I'm going beyond the data here, but we have a, an old party system. A party system was formed in the 1960s, still fighting battles that a large part of the population has moved on from. In a sense, it's the baby boom generation sort of hanging on by its fingernails to a lot of the old conflicts. And at some point or another, I think a young generation of both parties is going to reorient things. And it's probably going to take a sort of a Schultz or somebody coming out of neither party and really throwing a monkey wrench into the whole election and then forcing one or the other parties to reorient themselves. And it can't happen soon enough. <laughs> this is my personal position. But I, I think we're in one of these sort of transitional periods. Can't say how long it's going to go on, but it won't go on forever. I hope it won't go on forever. And one thing I appreciate about your take on most of this is you are an optimist. And yes. uh, <laughs> there are not as many optimists as there are pessimists in this field. <laughs> The challenge, I think, is how do you involve people who are disinterested in the subject but also frustrated with the outcome to get involved? And I think there have been a smattering of successful efforts. I look at Michigan's gerrymandering ballot initiative as an example of something that got people excited and involved that hadn't normally been involved in politics. You know, there is not a ton of excitement around Howard Schultz as a candidate, even among people that you would think would be excited about him. I, I don't mean to carry Schultz's water, but somebody like uh, somebody from outside who has the resources and has positions that don't fit in either party. You know, in a way, a Trump-like figure who didn't have all of Trump's personal pathologies, I think, would have, would have been that kind of person. You know, have positions that really represented either party's core. Some of his positions are standard conservative positions, or at least they've become standard conservative positions yeah. now that he's in office, but a lot of them are not. But the base, his base voters are loyal to him regardless of singular issues, as bases are to candidates that they're loyal to. But it does make the question of sorting a little bit different when you have someone in office who is changing kind of the old guard. Yeah, I, I also think, basically, uh, I have no way of quantifying this, but I think a good part of Trump's support is not so much they love Trump, it's they really despise Trump's enemies. And I, I talked to a lot of journalists, and I, I think a lot of the elite journalists still haven't gotten appreciated the fact that the fact that they hate Trump is, for Trump voters, a feature, not a bug, that this actually makes them more likely to support Trump. So, I, I mean, I think there is this bit of a, I mean, well-deserved. I mean, the, the elites in this country have a sort of condescending, holier-than-thou attitude toward ordinary people. And it comes through in so many ways all the time. And so I think just the very fact that Trump drives these people crazy is actually a plus for a lot of voters. Out there. I completely agree with you. Terms like flyover country and second class citizens or others and not having respect for people that have different viewpoints, it creates in me a lot more sympathy for those who are supportive yeah. of Trump. I may not agree with some of the, the rhetoric in 
bone of the administration. But at the same time, we shouldn't have an environment where we disrespect people just, you know, there's so much judgment that's taking place. Um, I would love if you could share a little bit about your own life, your own upbringing. I come from the epicenter of Trump country. I come from Western Pennsylvania, a town called Latrobe, Barney Palmer's uh, town, about 30 or 40 miles east of Pittsburgh. It was prosperous, uh, first coal mining and then steel mill country. I worked in the steel mills in the summers during college and made enough money to put myself through uh, with my loans and scholarships. And that's all gone now. The mills all closed in the 70s and early 80s. Good jobs are hard to come by. My siblings, a couple of my siblings are still back there. And they're, I describe them as working poor, that essentially that you can't get the kind of jobs uh, that existed in the old days. I think the county went at least two thirds for Trump. Yeah, the county is about 95% white. I mean, so race was never an issue. It was simply Trump speaking to economic decline, speaking to the cultural side of things we talk about. Heavy on guns. Uh, I think this is one of the things I'm studying now. I, I think the gun issue was one of the things that was underplayed in the last election. And uh, I'm actually doing research on the whole thing now. I was just talking to my Easter, I was talking to my sister and brother-in-law, and you know, my brother-in-law wanted to know about the Mueller report and what did I think. And neither one of them voted for, voted, period. They couldn't vote for either uh, Hillary or Trump. And he said, everyone he talks to just says, it's over says, let's move on, for heaven's sakes. His view was, this is going to hurt the Democrats. And I said, I sort of basically agree with that, that, that for ordinary Americans, it's over. Let's move on. We have an election in a year and a half. And I suspect that even though it's just a, again, an anecdote, I think a lot of ordinary people in those kinds of areas, and by ordinary people, I just mean typical people, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, etc., the, the swing states, have that attitude that Democrats need to talk about their strengths, their policies that will help people like that not keep going after Trump on what ordinary people are just not keeping much track of. You write about a concept called the spiral of silence that was coined about 40 years ago. And essentially, it means that if a minority and a majority group stay silent, the minority group thinks they are completely alone, and the majority group thinks that they don't exist because they've stayed silent. That really resonated with me. How, how do you think that that applies itself in the environment that we're in now? Oh, I think it's very real. You know, I spend my time analyzing surveys, and I, I haven't looked at the 2016 survey, but in 2012, I know it was the case that about close to 40% of Republicans thought that federal restrictions on guns ought to be stricter. And it was the same sort of thing. About one-third of strong Republicans are pro-choice. And I had slides and I'd, people would sort of, I'd get email afterwards saying, I don't know any Republicans who believe that. And I think what we're seeing an illustration is if you were a pro-gun control or a pro-choice Republican, you knew you were in a minority and you just didn't talk about it when you were in a group. Like your earlier anecdote about people sort of, I don't want to talk about this because I know other people disagree with me. As, as again, and this was Elizabeth Noel Neumann, a German scholar, and I think she put her finger on something that was really important, that minorities shut up and it gives, so minorities never know that there are as many of them as there are, and majorities think they're homogeneous. There actually is a Facebook study on the same subject where they looked at people's networks, and they found that people thought their networks were much more politically homogeneous than they actually were. And again, you're seeing this, I think, if you were in a network where you knew your position was in a minority, you didn't post on those sorts of things. You just sort of kept quiet when those sorts of things come up, giving this artificial impression of homogeneity of networks. Mm-hmm. Have you seen a specific issue area in the U.S. or somewhere else in the world where a spiral of silence minority group broke out of the spiral of silence and succeeded in sharing their viewpoint? Well, I think in in the large, you could look at the whole Trump phenomenon. 
as that. Remember how many people, how many times Trump was dead? Oh, he said this, he's dead. Oh, he said this, that's it. <laughs> and it didn't, people, what was surprising was a whole lot of people thought, yeah, I agree with that. They just hadn't heard anybody articulate it for a long time. And so I, I think, you know, in a way, there was a spiral of silence writ large that Trump broke what a lot of people regarded as norms. And it turns out the actual support for those norms wasn't nearly as strong as people sort of thought, mm. especially people in elite circles. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we've entered a climate that is significantly more divisive than it was 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Uh, 10, 20, yes. 40, 50, no. I mean, you earlier you've referred to the fact I'm an optimist. I think anybody who lived through the 60s can't be as disturbing, disturbed about the present uh, as people who didn't. I mean, we had every summer huge riots breaking out, cities burning. There were machine guns on the steps of Capitol Hill to protect Congress from, from rioters. Uh, there were just, I mean, the, the amount of violence that we saw in the 60s, and in, in fact, it's too bad we just don't teach history anymore in, in, in our schools. America has been a violent country from the beginning. Nobody knows anymore about, the, the, in my area, you grew up with them, the, the violent strikes that occurred, the pitched battles between miners and, and the coal police and so forth. Violence is as American as apple pie. The kind of people who talk today about civil war, I just want to shake my head and say, oh, you, you nabby pants, you know, you think a few harsh words on the internet amount to we're on the verge of civil war. You, you have to have even lived through the 60s to understand what we've gone through before and come out of because we have a strong population. I worry about our leaders. I don't worry about our population. And we have a strong population. We will muddle through this in some way or another. Uh, it could be rough. We're missing opportunities to make headway. But we are a big heterogeneous democracy, the biggest most diverse democracy on earth. People differ in their interests, in their values, and it's just remarkable we do as well as we do. And we do it pretty much nonviolently for the most part with periodic eruptions. And so I am optimistic. I'm writing a paper right now that's basically taking an optimistic take on what's going on not in the United States but around the world. In your maybe more recent work, what is one of the most surprising things that you've learned or come across? I'm just, I'm not surprised in in a sense. Like I did, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at public opinion on immigration. And basically, if you look at five or six core illegal immigration, five or six core Democratic positions, the public rejects them all. If you look at five or six core Republican positions, the public rejects them all. Like, for example, you know, like two-thirds of the public says, yes, path to citizenship for dreamers. 70% of the public says, we got to do something about the southern border. And so I could go into a room and in two hours sketch out an omnibus proposal that if there were such a thing as a national referendum, would probably get two-thirds of the vote, popular vote, a compromise. But in Congress, you get almost no votes. Republicans mm-hmm. have voted against it for one set of reasons. Democrats have voted against it for another set of reasons. It kind of illustrates the problems we have, that the solutions are there, but the way the parties are sorted makes it impossible to implement those solutions. And that's what I, I find not so much, I mean, surprising how easy they are in some cases, I guess is what I'm saying, and yet how difficult it is to get there. Hmm. Do you think that the root of that, you know, seeing a, a solution to a problem in sight and knowing that in the system that we're in and the people that we have in office in the system that we're in would make it impossible to get it through? Do you think that, you know, is it a chicken and egg problem in terms of the people that we have elected into the system, in part because it is difficult as a moderate to stay in office more than one or two cycles? Or do you think the problem is the system itself that makes it difficult to pass legislation that requires compromise, but the majority of the country would be in favor of? 
I, I think it's complicated. I think it reflects the ascendance in both parties of people who simply reject compromise. I think it also reflects the fact that because the political balance in this country is so close that, as Frances Lee has argued in her book, every election, every session of Congress is simply oriented toward getting the majority of the next Congress. So it doesn't matter what position you've taken in the past, you want to take a position that gets you more seats in the next Congress. And, you know, another example is just yesterday or the day before, a Social Security report came out about how the system was going to run out of money in a fairly close future. Now, any policy analyst you talk to says that Social Security is trivially easy to solve. Some little combination of raising the tax rate, uh, lifting the cap and raising retirement age. And you can put it on a firm footing as long as we have any sort of confidence in our projections. But if you try to do any of those things, one party or the other absolutely rejects raising taxes. No, Republicans won't do that. Raising retirement age, Democrats say no. You know, And so again, we have this absolutely clear solution, not very hard to implement in theory, but in practice, in political practice, impossible. And it has to do with the fact that you know in the next election, if you raise taxes, they're going to hammer you. Republican candidates, your, your base will hammer you. If you raise the retirement age, the Democratic base will ham- hammer Democrats. And so you're just trapped. In a sense, what puts an end to some of these earlier episodes we've had is one party wins big, wins again. And at that point, the minority realizes, okay, it's going to take us a long time to crawl out of this hole. For now, we'll worry about simply trying to make policies as best they can, try to limit the damage the majority does, and not simply, they don't have the power to stop everything. And until one party or the other wins, I think we're going to be in that kind of position. pass major legislation and you do not have a bipartisan attitude towards it, then the moment that the next Congress you know, comes where the other party's in power, the goal becomes repeal, repeal, repeal. And that's almost the prize of the win versus, well, what, what's the replace look like? What do you think is the ideal breakdown, not one party specifically versus the other, but the ideal breakdown of party to get real work done? I mean, do you not think it's close to 50-50? Uh, no. <laughs> Again, 30 years ago, there were, when Reagan came in, he didn't have a majority in the House, but there were Southern Democrats who joined Republicans to pass the tax cuts. And that has often been the case in our, our history where there, I mean, the, going back to the civil rights bills in, uh, in the 1960s, you had liberal Republicans who would join with the Democrats to pass those over the objections of Southern Democrats. It's, it's the size of majority, not necessarily the size of the party groupings that matter. And the problem is now is that the two parties are really separated in Congress. There's almost no overlap policy. And then they also just impose because of funding and so forth, they impose constraints. It's a different kind of politics. It looks more like the kind of Christian Democrats versus Social Democrats that characterized Europe in the post-World War II period, rather than the kind of normal history in the United States. Before we start to close, you recently commented in some local news articles about an episode that took place at a, <laughs> at a Starbucks in Palo Alto. Um, can you share a little bit about what you know, this is really very disappointing thing that happened, but your take again is a little more optimistic. Can you share a little bit about what that what that was? Yeah, I was at a political science convention in Chicago and my phone kept picking and I went up to my room to check messages and it was the San Jose Mercury News, the Palo Alto Weekly, all these people saying, please call. And they said, do you know what happened in Palo Alto? And I said, no. And 
some older gentleman, uh, 74 years old, had worn a mega hat, mega, however you pronounce it, into a Starbucks. Apparently he does this every day, just has his coffee. And a woman came in, noticed this, and just went ballistic, started screaming at him, accused him, we see you must hate all people of color, called him Nazi scum. The guy turns out to be Jewish, asks other people to join in shaming this guy, and everything leaves, comes back and sort of c- continues to harass him. Then she goes home and she posts it on Facebook on the lot and says, identify this person gets fired do all these kind of things just totally <laughs> and of course her she gets fired her employer is getting hate mail she begins to get death threats and this makes it all the way up to fox news it was and the questions were is this a trend is this and i said no it's not a trend this is just this is just ridiculous so the person turns out to be co-chair of the bay area progressive caucus or something like she's a real activist real involved in what kind of person i'm talking about who's simply unrepresentative of the broader public and no we, we raise our kids not to behave this way the disappointing thing for me was nobody in starbucks got up and just said, you're out of line. She obviously was kind of, she's actually missing now. They think she's just going off the grid to uh, get away from all the publicity and all the hate mail. But it's just sort of this, why would an adult behave this way? This is not, you know, some kid. This is a, an adult with a family. And again, it reflects the fact she, she made a whole lot of assumptions about this guy, just the fact that he had a mega hat on that were probably unfounded. I mean, like the fact that he's Jewish. He's not Nazi scum. And uh, so... <laughs> I mean, and, and again, our earlier point, this gets on, this goes viral and it's on the news and everything. I still, something was on yesterday even. So people sort of think there must be much more of this out there than there actually is. This is just a once in a blue moon kind of incident and should not be taken as representative. And yet the media gives a lot of people the sense that, oh yeah, there's, this is a lot of this going on. No, there's not a lot of this going on. We had the owner of the Red Hen restaurant in Connecticut on, and which is a different red hen from the one that asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave. And the owner of that red hen restaurant in Virginia was is a politically active person. But this poor woman in Connecticut, Shelly DeProto, her life overnight became the center or at least, you know, orbiting the center of this wild news story. So I agree with you that the actors, the bad actors in terms of treating people with respect, et cetera, on, on, on both sides of the aisle, we see this kind of behavior. Those People are, are definitely in the minority, but from where I sit, I look at what is happening in terms of how are everyday people handling or dealing with this kind of junk that's now becoming a little bit more in the realm of, of your own life, whether you want it to be there or not. I understand that you know this is not happening on every street corner in America, but it certainly is happening. Media is playing fodder to the stories and kind of trying to force I know with Shelley DeProto, the media wanted her to pick a side. I mean, that's the narrative. They wanted her to fit into this box. Okay, but just remember, whenever you, I, I, I'm subject to it too, I sort of think, is this really getting, there are 235 million eligible voters in the United States. And even if a million people sort of started tweeting and posting about something like that and hate stuff, you're still talking about like less than one half of 1% of the American public. So it's still, you have to force yourself to think this is still unrepresentative. And I think um, the second point, Mayor Pete, I think, has a really good political sense. And like his remark that, well, he's sorry that the owners of Chick-fil-A contribute to these conservative religious organizations, but the chicken's pretty good. Yeah, I think... (laughs) 
I, I think there's a whole lot of Americans sort of, that's where they are. You know, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sort of change my sort of everyday life based on political considerations. And, uh, and I, I sort of thought, okay, that was an inspired response he gave on that one. It was because he did not fit the narrative that a core base voter would want him to say, but it, it resonated with me. They do make good sandwiches. Uh, but I have friends that will, they're in the spiral of silence and that they won't eat their chicken sandwich around their coworkers. They'll eat it before they go back to the office. But that's where we are. That's part of the climate too. Well, before we close, our, our last question for every guest, which is a question I have a feeling you will appreciate, is what are you most optimistic about right now, today? Oh, um, <laughs> nothing in particular. I mean, I just... Nothing in particular. An optimist on the show and you say nothing in particular. I'm optimistic about everything. We have a, a great country. Things in the economy is looking pretty good. I'm, I'm hoping our politics gets better. I don't have any predictions about how it will. All I can think of is you, you can't, I think generational change is going to account, going to cure some of this, that, you know, too many older people defining politics. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry, it's a poor answer, but I'm just generally optimistic. I'm not losing sleep over anything. That's an attitude I think more of us should should try to take on. I'm, I'm not quite there with you, but I respect it nonetheless and appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining Sanity. Really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. <laughs>